0: Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and history podcast. You're listening to episode 60, Camp Fernando Collard de Mello.
1: Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Disrupt Wimbledon when we disrupt Wimbledon. Find out how World War II ended when we find out how World War II ended. And today I'll be talking about Season 4, Episode 1, Camp Krusty, first aired on September the 24th, 1992.
0: And for the start of Series 4, I'm in Brazil. Because on September the 29th, 1992, five days after Camp Krusty first aired, the president, Fernando Collor de Mello, resigned. I'll be going over the history of Brazil, and we'll find out what happened to a president who actually was impeached.
1: If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. We're back for season four. As with last season, production block 9F, which forms the majority of this season, was produced under the watchful eye of Al Jean and Mike Reese. We'll be meeting some new writers this season, which is good, because at the end of 9F we're going to lose a great deal of the existing writers, but we'll talk about that when it happens. The big change for this block is a change to the animators, from Klasky Supo to Film Roman. According to the LA Times, Gracie Films... James L. Brooks's production company, had apparently been unhappy with the producer that Klasky Supo had assigned to the show, whilst Gabor Supo himself said that Gracie wanted to bring in their own producer and declined, saying they wanted to tell me how to run my business. No one likes that, let's face it. Sam Simon was quick to assure people that there wouldn't be a drop in quality or a change of look, and personally I think it starts looking much better almost immediately. So a good switch for the show as it turns out. So this was first aired on September the 24th, 1992. But Gareth, I hear you cry. What was the UK number one that week? It's The Shaman with Ebenezer Good. Hey, nice. Ah, maybe we didn't miss the summer of rave. This uh, Scottish act were formed in 1985 by Colin Angus and David and Keith McKenzie, a very Scottish-named bunch there. They were joined by Will Sinnott in 1987 and were originally a psychedelic rock band before moving into electronic dance music. By their third album, *Intact* and the single Move Any Mountain, they transformed into something much more akin to the version of the band we're used to, with rapper Mr. C having joined, and a new focus on female vocalists. Their run really got going with the album Boss Drum, from which this is the second single, after LSI became their first top five single in July 1992. But of course, this song is best known for a BBC radio ban around its apparent subject matter of drug use. By dropping H's throughout the song and combining syllables in a number of clever ways, they're <laughs> clearly making drug references, singing as they are about E's, a slang name for pills of the then-popular club drug ecstasy. Have I ever sounded more middle-aged than when I said that sentence? <laughs> Although if you see the lyrics written down, they're technically not actually doing that. Uh, if nothing else, they have to be saluted for the wordplay throughout this song's core rap section. The BBC ban, which arguably added to their popularity, was eventually lifted and they did get to perform this on top of the pops. Albeit with Mr. C changing the last line of the song to, has anyone got any underlay? Thus dropping a rug reference into the song, something <laughs> that I find incredibly amusing. So this got a four-week run at number one. It was the 13th highest-selling single of the year in the UK, and it also got to number one in Ireland and Israel. Unfortunately, at the time they made it this big, they were also mourning the death of Will Sinnott, who had drowned in May 1991, so it was very mixed feelings for the group. The single was eventually deleted, which some said was due to media pressure, but the band themselves said that it was due to it messing with their release schedule. There were more singles to come from the parent album and this was just getting in the way of their promotional efforts. We might hear from them again, because this is a bit of a purple patch for the band, so let's keep an ear out for that. The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 13.5, approximately 12.6 million viewing households, 24th overall for the week, and the highest rated show on Fox. The production number was 8F24, which means this is a holdover from Season 3's production block. And the creditive writer is David M. Stern, who we discussed in episode 14, Transnistria Gets an F. The chalkboard gag is this punishment is not boring and pointless. And the couch gag is the family meeting the Flintstones. I'm not going to do the song. As Fred, Wilma and Pebbles are sat on the couch. The modern Stone Age family were a big influence on The Simpsons' approach as a primetime animated sitcom. So what actually happens in the episode? Well. The Simpsons are going to school. Not the most exciting of openings, but it is at least the last day of school, and Bart gets an F. That sounds awfully familiar. He is rattled as, without a C average, Homer won't let him go to Camp Krusty over the summer. He explains this to Edna, who changes the grade even though it isn't fair to the other kids, and they embark on the destruction of the school at Skinner's behest. Sometime around the point where Bart puts the wrecking ball through the school's entrance, he wakes from his dream to discover it's the morning of the last day of school, and to receive a whack around the head with a newspaper by Homer, just to be sure it's not still a dream. At breakfast, Homer is reminded of his promise to the children. When you're 18, you're out the door. Oh no, wait, the other promise, the camp-related one. Bart expresses doubt as to whether he can achieve a C, but his first job is to clear out his somewhat feral locker, which contains a recorder, a long-forgotten potato experiment, some fossilized gym shorts, and what appears to be a packet of cigarettes in Miss Hoover's class. The teacher is trying to run down the clock. Lisa gets her report card and it is marred by her mere b plus in conduct. Barts meanwhile isn't quite as bad as his dream. d minus all around, and Edna wishes him a delightful summer in a delicious pun. Everyone from the teachers to the bullies to Otto and the school nurse are cock-a-hoop when summer finally ticks around, although one class is kept for a few extra seconds to find out how World War II ended. Tom, how did World War II end?
0: Well, the Americans won. Simple as that.
1: (laughs) Excellent. Bart takes the only way out he can think of, forging his report card into blanket A-pluses despite the lack of plausibility. Homer is disappointed he didn't turn the D's into B's, but he accepts the whole thing as his mistake for trying to motivate Bart. Plus, he didn't want him hanging around all summer anyway. So the trip is back on.
0: Oh, that's some solid parenting there.
1: (laughs) Preparing for their trips, Bart vows to skinny dip whilst Lisa stucks up on vaccines. Very timely. And we find out it's fat camp for Daddy's chubby little secret, Martin Prince. Krusty, as it turns out, also runs what is described as an image enhancement camp on the same site that he is attending. Sad goodbyes are said, though the parents show great relief when they're gone, even Marge, which is a bit out of character. So it's off to the crustiest place on Earth, and an orientation video made by Krusty to introduce his bestest buddy in the whole wide world, Mr. Black, (laughs) the head counsellor, who you cannot call Uncle Blackie. He'll be running things for a few weeks with the dubious assistance of Dolph, Jimbo and Kearney, with Krusty having promised to arrive eventually, but actually being found at Wimbledon. Marge and Homer home must celebrate a child-free summer with shower sex, picnics, weight loss, push-ups and hair regrowth, whilst Bart and Lisa exist in ramshackle huts with rattlesnakes for company, plastered with the Krusty brand seal of approval roasting pine cones over gasoline fires and enduring activities of limited safety, whilst the fat campers get boot camped. And then we see a montage of their squalor over the grating overlong Camp Krusty song, which kills the best part of a minute and this episode for me. Whilst they eke out a life on Krusty brand imitation gruel, the counselor team enjoys a succulent roast dinner with brandy and cigars and a toast to evil. Lisa's factual written account of their ordeal and Bart's descent into madness as he clings to his hope that Krusty will arrive and fix everything is written off as homesickness by Marge and Homer. And the final straw comes when a Krusty impersonator, who is clearly Barney Gumble, is wheeled out. And the kids rebel, chasing the counsellors off, freeing the fat campers and finally distributing the suppressed mail from home. Tom! You don't think you were going to get away with that (laughs) quiz in the uh, season opener, do you? Who do we see Lisa give a package to, and what is in the package?
0: Okay, there's a kid called Kowalski, I think. Yes, there is. Who gets brownies. Yes, he does. Ralph Wiggum gets a change of underwear. Indeed. I can't remember the name of the last kid. I think it might be Wendell, but he gets insulin.
1: Absolutely. I'm going to give you full marks for that. It's actually Crandall. Oh, Crandall. um, I was close. I mean, close enough.
0: Definitely. Oh, I've been called called Wendell. I've been making an arse out of myself.
1: (laughs) Uh, Camp Krusty is no more. Camp Bart rises in its place. And Kemp Brockman comes to investigate. Homer sees this on the news and immediately loses his extra hair and regains his lost weight and Krusty misses out on a knighthood to rush back and make reparations to the upset youngsters by showing them the time of their lives in the happiest place on Earth, Chihuahua, Mexico! <laughs> and and that, somewhat oddly, is where it ends. This is my least favourite episode of Season 4, and it's not even close. The way I see this is that somehow they have taken an idea that would seem to have real legs somehow failed to fill the running time with it, stretched what they have incredibly thin, and then tack on a nonsensical swerve ending that wouldn't seem out of place in seasons 11 to 13. I'm not going to say it doesn't have its moments, but the toast to evil definitely springs to mind, um, and Homer's touching speech at the lawnmower, but I, I just think he's well down on the average quality around this time. What did you reckon, Tom?
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, I can certainly see what you're saying about how it just sort of stops. But yes, but there's still plenty of memeable stuff in it, as we will come to later.
1: Excellent. So uh a character debut in this one Mr Black. <laughs> he is the head counselor of Camp Krusty, coming with fifteen years of experience running land until it blew up. <laughs> he is voiced by Harry Shearer and has never reappeared in The Simpsons. Can you believe it? A one-shot character that is actually a one-shot character. The director of this episode, Mark Kirkland, was sure he'd come back at some stage. and, And I've got to admit, I can't see why he hasn't. He could have replaced all kinds of faceless corporate stooges in later episodes. However, oh, and I was so glad to find this out, he does have his own story in the comics.
0: Of course he does.
1: In Simpsons Comics issue 36, released in April 1998, there's a story called The Geek Shall Inherit the Earth, where the nerds who help Homer in Season 5, Episode 3, Homer Goes to College, make a hit video game, which provokes Mr. Black to try to buy their games company. Assumedly, with hilarious results, that's all I found out about it. Interesting to note as well that Ralph Wiggum is mentioned and seen in this episode. I think this is the first time he's named. I could be wrong. Really, I should have researched that, given that is my one job for this podcast. (laughs) Um, I would say he's not quite himself. And also, we're getting very, very close to his signature episode. So once again, I'm going to save the Ralph Wiggum discussion for later. Which brings us to, did you know? During the dream trashing of the school, we hear schools out by Alice Cooper. Did you know? I really like that period of Alice Cooper's career. Hmm. I'm fairly certain it appears again in The Simpsons, but when I looked it up, I couldn't find anything. So I'm starting to doubt myself on that one. If any listeners can remember it being used again in The Simpsons, please do get in touch through the usual methods. Speaking of songs, though, the Camp Krusty song would go on to appear on the sequel album to The Simpsons' Sing the Blues, the far too lately released Yellow album when it finally appeared on November the 24th, 1998. Sure. If you'd like to hear me discuss why it was released six years after it would have been relevant, I do just that with friend of the podcast, Tim Worthington, on episode 24 of his podcast, Looks Unfamiliar. So maybe go and listen to that. I wish I was better at self-promotion. The feral behaviour of the children after the establishment of Camp Bart, particularly the mounting of a pig's head on a sharpened stick, <laughs> refers to William Golding's 1965 novel, Lord of the Flies. It's been done to death by everything, and will later be revisited by a further Simpsons episode, Season 9, Episode 14, Das Bus. That episode basically just is Lord of the Flies, although I'm pretty sure that the kids in the novel aren't rescued by, oh, let's say, mo (laughs) this episode has a sequel season 28 episode 16 camp crustier also written by David M. Stern who was returning to the series after an 18 year break it's pretty good it deals with Bart and Lisa dealing with the trauma of their camp experience and Homer and Marge dealing with the trauma of having their kids home after a peaceful summer and finally Remember the Simpsons movie? This was meant to be it. So James L. Brooks liked the idea of this episode so much, he suggested they work it up to feature length and put it in the cinema. Now that seems like an absolutely ridiculous notion in hindsight, as they struggled mightily to even get this up to the length of a normal episode. If you think the pretty unnecessary song in the middle seems a bit long, it's because they added extra bits to it to pad out the episode. They also had this one earmarked as the season premiere, so they were reluctant to mess around with the running order. Al Jean is quoted as saying to Brooks, first of all, if we make it into the movie, then we don't have a premiere. And second, if we can't make 18 minutes out of this episode, how are we meant to make 80? And it's really clear logic, I would think. It's just uh, I I cannot believe that that was ever the case. But, But there we go. Having said that, it's a little ironic that having struggled so badly to finish the episode, they'd eventually managed to do a sequel to it. So there we go. Perhaps there were as yet unplumbed depths to be mined there. Mm. And now, Tom, it's time for this season's first memeable moments. Mm.
0: Now, I've gone for 12. I'll add my usual caveat of some people will think there's more, some people will think there's less. Uh, But I've gone for a lot of lines that we've already talked about. So number one. When you're 18, you're out the door. Number two is Lisa reacting to her report card. I've never gotten a bee before. I feel so dirty. The dirt's not coming off. Uh, number three. Uh, and as someone who studies history, <laughs> this really gets my goat, this line. Wait a minute. You didn't learn
1: how World War II ended. We won. <laughs> <laughs> that That is a heavily memed one, isn't it? I've seen, I've seen tons of those ones. You can apply it on so much.
0: I mean, uh, yeah, it's a great one. Then at number four, we've got Mr. Black. I want you sh- to show all the respect to Mr. Black. What you would do to me. Number five uh, is Lisa attempting to get into that sort of canoe thing. Are you sure that's safe? Well, they ain't getting any safer. That has been used as a comparison for easing of coronavirus restrictions. So want someone labelling it British schools. <laughs> Uh, six is the Camp Krusty song. I really like it when they go, "We will always love Camp Krusty." Average is a trade of Michael Krusty Corporation. All rights reserved. I like that bit. Uh, then you got number seven, which is them being served Krusty brand imitation gruel. Then after that, you've got number eight, which is which is the toast. where We're all drinking brandy, gentlemen. Too evil. Uh, then number nine. I feel like I'm going to die, Bart. We're all going to die, at least. I meant soon. So did I. (laughs) Then he got number 10, which is Krusty at Wimbledon. And just more or less everything he does here is a meme. So eating the strawberries. I've seen someone Photoshop that, so he's eating a bowl of Daryl's strawberry, the baseball player. (laughs) Um, Hey, Lendl, choke, choke, yay! I remember making a GIF of that myself when leeds united were about to choke winning the championship a couple of years ago hey leeds <laughs> choke choke <laughs> um 11 i think is quite an interesting one it's when ralph wiggum says of barney dressed as crusty he's still funny but not ha ha funny now i think that might be the birth of that phrase because i can't remember hearing it before that but you know he's funny but not ha ha funny is sort of entered into the lexicon of, uh, of a lot of people. I remember hearing it in an Eels song as well. I can't remember which one, though, right? but uh, yeah. So Ooh. that's
1: definitely, one. Well, that would definitely post-date, wouldn't they? Eels were, what, 97? Something like that? It's oh,
0: about that, yeah. Life is funny, but not ha-ha funny. Peculiar, I guess? Oh, but well, then it's got some squaring in it, so I better not carry on. <laughs> and finally, number 12 kent brockman's report on camp crusty i've been to afghanistan and iraq and i can say without hyperbole that this is worse than all of them put together <laughs>
1: uh, what so would kent are. brockman be without hyperbole it's it it's his uh, it's his main playbook <laughs> indeed
0: so there we are that's your
1: memeable moments for first episode of series four fantastic Excellent. Okay, well, with all of the Simpsons business taken care of, it's time for us to jet off to Brazil. It is indeed.
0: Okay, first off, welcome to the post Cold War world. So, when we started this show, we covered the downfall of Nicolae Ceaușescu, the former president of Romania. That was our episode one. Now, back then, Romania was part of the so called Eastern Bloc, a bunch of countries in Europe that were under the influence of the USSR. Germany was split in two, and the USA and the Soviet Union fought proxy wars all over the world. In a few short years, all of that had gone. By late 1992, the Soviet Union had disintegrated, Germany's reunited, and most of the proxy wars had wrapped up. It marked the beginning of a new period of European unity, as the Maastricht Treaty had been signed and the European Union was about to come into existence. But what about Brazil? The subject of my bit, well, Brazil's involvement in the Cold War was kind of limited. I'll go into more details in a minute, but up until 1964, Brazil had a civilian government when it was overthrown by a military coup. After that, its military government was pretty much in step with the USA. In 1990, the military government allowed democratic elections and adopted a new constitution. Fernando Collor de Mello was elected president. His tenure didn't last very long, as we shall discover. But first, let's talk about the history of Brazil. Before Europeans showed up, Brazil was populated by thousands of indigenous tribes who lived along the coast and major rivers, such as the Amazon. The ones who lived in land were largely hunter-gatherers, while those on the coast were agrarian. And yes, some of them were cannibals. So the inhuman evildoer Christopher Columbus landed in America in 1492, starting off the European Age of Discovery. Now, Columbus was funded by Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, a country who had a long-standing rivalry with their neighbours, Portugal. Both countries were very much seafaring nations, and they anticipated discovering lots more land in the New World. Both being God-fearing nations, they went to their referee, the Pope. On May 4th, 1493, Pope Alexander VI, otherwise known as Rodrigo Borgia, if you want to look up some some very <laughs> uh, dodgy stuff. Look at look up what the Borgias got up to. So he issued the papal bull Intercaterra, which decreed that any land west of a line drawn a hundred leagues west of the Cape Verde Islands belonged to Spain, with Portugal not even mentioned. He basically went, right, there's a line in the world. And on that side, right, anything that side of it, that belongs to Spain. This was followed up by the Treaty of Tordesillas the next year, where Spain and Portugal formalised the demarcation. So before anyone even knew about the continent of South America, Spain and Portugal were already eyeing up dividing it between themselves. In 1497, the explorer Vasco da Gama set off from Lisbon and discovered what Columbus was originally looking for. Gareth, can you remember what that was? (sighs) Alison Taylor talks about it.
1: Is it a passage to
0: India, Tom? That's right. Columbus was looking for a passage to India. This was very important because of how lucrative the Indian spice trade was. At the time, the only way to get to India from Europe was over land, which itself was fraught with danger. De Gama found out that you can sail all the way around Africa, you then go to the Indian Ocean, and then to India itself. Now, that's a hell of a long way to go. That's a distance that's longer than the equator, but it's uncontested. So the route that de Gama opened up to Portugal allowed them to dominate the spice trade for decades. But where am I going with this? What's this got to do with Brazil? Well, Brazil was discovered in the colonial sense by an explorer and nobleman called Pedro Alvarez Cabral, pretty much by accident. He led a fleet consisting of 1500 men on an expedition to India to establish trade relations and build a factory. In March 1500, he set sail from Lisbon and was waved off by King Manuel I of Portugal, who had the moniker Manuel the Fortunate. They sailed along the west coast of Africa, but when they reached the equator, Cabral was blown massively off course and sailed westwards. After a while, he reached the coast of South America. They landed by a mountain, which Cabral christened Monte Pascual, the Portuguese for Easter Mount, given that they landed during Easter. He met natives, put up a massive wooden cross, and claimed the land for Portugal before sailing back in the direction of Africa. So Cabral made one hell of a journey, starts from Lisbon, goes down the west coast of Africa, gets lost, ends up in Brazil, comes back, goes all the all the way around Africa, round the Cape of Good Hope, up the east coast, through to the Indian Ocean, then to India. And then he comes back.
1: How long did that take?
0: Oh, months, months. Poor guy. And he he set up this factory and the factory was torched by um, a force of three, three thousand Hindus and Muslims, just one of the Portuguese out there. So, uh, yeah, an eventful trip. (laughs) So initially, Portugal showed little interest in Brazil because they were making all this money from the Indian spice trade. The only thing of any worth there for the Portuguese was a tree whose trunk contained a red dye. That tree is Brazilwood, and it's where the country of Brazil gets its name from. So the country is named after the tree, not the other way around. The Portuguese set up the captaincy system in a rather lacklustre attempt to govern the country. The country was divided into strips of land that ran from the coast of the Tordesillas line, and each one was given to a nobleman who governed it on behalf of the King of Portugal. The system failed and Portuguese immigration to Brazil was minimal. Various people took advantage of Portugal's indifferent attitude to Brazil, most notably the French. They set up the colony of france Antarctique in 1555, and it became a haven for Huguenots who were fleeing persecution in France. Its capital, Fort Coligny, was founded on the island of Serigipi, which lies in Guanabara Bay. This lasted until 1560, when the recently appointed governor general of Brazil, Mem de Sá, led a force of 2,000 men to destroy Fort Colony. With the French driven out, the Portuguese founded the city of Rio de Janeiro. Now, Portuguese colonisation of Brazil was brutal, to put it lightly. To do the work, they needed labour. However, the population of Portugal itself was tiny, around a million. To get workers, they went into the interior of the country and hunted for indigenous people to enslave. Not only did they enslave a lot of people, but the Portuguese brought Western diseases with them, such as smallpox, typhoid, and influenza. The indigenous people had no immunity to these diseases, and they died in their thousands, sometimes without even meeting any Portuguese. There was resistance, most notably in the form of the Tomoyo Confederation, but the population decreased from around three million before Cabral showed up, to around three hundred thousand today. Then in the late sixteenth century, the Portuguese realized that Brazil had the ideal climate for growing sugar cane. Plantations sprang up, especially around the coastal regions, and the landowners required a workforce. By this point they had taken all the slaves they could from the native population, so they looked elsewhere. By this point, Portugal had a global empire, including their African colony of Angola. Portuguese traders managed to work out a very profitable triangle. They would sail from Lisbon and go to Angola to load their ship with slaves. Then they would go to Brazil and sell the slaves. They would load up with sugar and various other things and sell them in Europe. In total the Portuguese slave trade forced four million people from Africa to Brazil. Of course I don't need to go into detail of how awful and brutal the slave trade was, I've done that in a previous episode. Meanwhile in Europe events transpired that saw the Dutch getting involved in Brazil. Now Netherlands had been ruled by Spain since 1482, and they were incorporated into the Spanish Empire in 1556. But in 1568, the Eighty Years' War broke out. This resulted in Netherlands becoming independent of Spain, but it wasn't a presto change overnight thing. I mean, it took 80 years. Also in 1580, a succession crisis in Portugal following the disappearance of their King Sebastian I led to the Habsburgs taking over Portugal uniting it with Spain in what became known as the Iberian Union. This meant that Spain took control of Portuguese territories, including Brazil, and Brazil therefore became fair game for the Dutch. So you've know you got three players involved there, but uh, the end of the story, the Dutch are after the Portuguese. So in 1624, the Dutch took a force of 3,000 men and captured Salvador, which at the time was the capital. The next year a combined Portuguese and Spanish force of 12,000 men retook the city but that wasn't the end of it. The Dutch invaded again in 1630 and this time they consolidated their control claiming a significant portion of Brazil's northeast coast. Portugal became independent from Spain in 1640 and nine years later they finally ejected the Dutch from Brazil. In 1661 Portugal and the Netherlands agreed to the Treaty of the Hague which recognized Portugal's sovereignty over Brazil in return for a substantial cash settlement. So while all this was going on the borders of Brazil were pushed further inland and beyond the Torcedia's line by a group of men called banderantes, literally flag carrier in Portuguese. These men ventured into the interior of Brazil initially to look for indigenous people to enslave but they also found a very important resource, gold. So in the early 1700s, Brazil experienced a gold rush. Suddenly, Brazil became attractive to Europeans and even more slaves were imported to work in the mines. This caused a population boom and Brazil grew. This growth was exacerbated by the introduction of coffee plantations in 1720. And by 1850, Brazil was producing half the world's coffee. And again, they needed slaves to to work on the coffee plantations. Then, in the early 1800s, something strange happened. Now, I'm sure we're all familiar with Napoleon Bonaparte and the Peninsula War. That's when old Bony invaded Spain and Portugal. In order to escape the fighting, the Queen of Portugal, Maria I, fled to Brazil with the rest of the Portuguese court. From there, she ruled the whole Portuguese empire from the city of Rio de Janeiro. When Napoleon was finally defeated in 1815, the British tried to persuade the Portuguese royal family to return to Lisbon. However, they didn't. They pretty much went, well, we like it here. It's a nice city. We're rolling over this big, wealthy territory and the French are an ocean away. Maria was incapacitated by ill health and her son, the Prince Regent, later João VI, declared Brazil to be a kingdom, part of the United Kingdom of Portugal, Brazil and the Algarve. This caused uproar in Europe, as the idea of a colony being given equal status to an old European monarchy was rather unpalatable. João returned to Portugal upon ascending to the throne in 1816, but he left his son, Pedro, behind in Brazil. Now, an independence movement was well established in Brazil anyway. and In 1822, Brazil declared its independence. As a republic, you might ask? Nope. As an empire, with Pedro as emperor. After Pedro declared independence, a war of independence followed. It pitted father against son, and in 1824, the son won. Weirdly enough, Joao VI died in 1826, shortly after the Brazilian War of Independence concluded. So technically, Pedro was King of Portugal and Emperor of Brazil for a few months, until his daughter, Dona Maria II, became Queen of Portugal. Pedro's reign was somewhat eventful. In 1828, Maria was usurped by Don Miguel, Pedro's younger brother. On top of that, he was unpopular in Brazil following a sex scandal involving a female courtier. He abdicated as emperor of Brazil in 1831 and led a force to take Portugal from the hands of his brother. He left his son, who at the time was only five years old, to be emperor. That man was Pedro II and he reigned until 1889. In case you haven't done the maths, that's over 58 years. Pedro II proved to be a popular and capable monarch. He ruled alongside elected representatives, and his reign saw Brazil both modernised and industrialised. He patronised the arts and the sciences, and he spoke 14 languages. However, the thorny issue of slavery remained. Having supported slavery for centuries, the UK abolished it in 1833. You know, they basically went, hey, we're the good guys now and everyone went No, that's not quite how it works you can't support something for hundreds of years then suddenly go no no no, no." it was bad all along anyway so british naval patrols would stop brazilian ships and seize any that were carrying slaves eventually in 1888 princess isabel in her role as regent while pedro was receiving medical treatment in europe promulgated the golden act which finally ended slavery Estimates on how many slaves were forced from Africa to Brazil vary, but the number is given as high as 12 million. Just a year later, Pedro II was kicked out. The military, under the persuasion of Republicans, a coup d'etat and removed Pedro from power in one of history's most uneventful revolutions. Pedro made no attempts to retaliate. I and mean, Personally, I think he was a bit knackered. He was old, in poor health and had accepted his fate. He lived a very modest life in France after that and eventually died of pneumonia in 1891 at the age of 66. Meanwhile, back in Brazil, the country had gone from having a benevolent emperor to a military dictatorship. The general Diodoro de Fonseca took over, and under his rule, things in Brazil took a turn for the worse. In order to encourage further industrialization, the military government adopted a policy of unrestricted credit for industrial investments and they printed vast quantities of money. This caused a lot of fraudulent dealings and inflation increase. The economic bubble this caused was known as the encelhamento, which means saddling up. And it led to the resignation of de in 1891. He was under pressure from the Brazilian Navy, who had threatened to bombard Rio if he didn't step down. The late 19th and early 20th centuries were tumultuous in Brazil, to say the least. The country went through various conflicts and revolts, including the Vaccine Revolt of 1904, In it, the government decreed that everyone in Rio was to be vaccinated against smallpox, and the vaccination was mandatory. Now, there was a lot going on at the time, and people saw it as the straw that broke the camel's back, and they rebelled against what they saw as government intrusion. The 1910s saw strong labour unions emerge around the world, and Brazil was no exception. There was a general strike in 1917, and the Conservative government were looking for a distraction. Luckily for them, World War I was in full swing. Beforehand, Brazil had been reluctant to enter it, but the Germans had declared unrestricted submarine warfare and they managed to sink a few Brazilian ships off the coast of France. Using this event as a pretext, Brazil declared war against the Central Powers. Their involvement was limited, but the Allies gave them the right to participate in the Versailles Conference. Throughout the 1920s, the situation in Brazil continued to be volatile. The Communist Party was founded in 1922 and the country was badly hit by the Spanish flu pandemic. Brazil's elections at the time were controlled by the army and riddled with corruption. Following the stock market crash of 1929 and the subsequent Great Depression, the election of 1930 was contested between Julio Prestes and Getulio Vargas. Prestes won, but Vargas refused to concede defeat. Vargas's vice presidential candidate, João Pessoa, was assassinated by João Duarte Dantas, one of his political rivals. Civil war looked inevitable and the military sided with Vargas. After removing Prestes, Vargas headed up a provisional government and ruled by decree heralding the arrival of the Vargas era. Although Brazil adopted a new constitution in 1934 where Vargas ruled as president alongside an elected legislature, he tore up the constitution in 1937, removed said legislature and ruled as a dictator. When World War II came around, Brazil was initially neutral. However, when the USA joined in, Brazil did too, its raw materials being a key part of the US war effort. Brazil's entry into World War II created a paradox. The country was involved in a global war against fascist dictators while being ruled by a fascist dictator. Demonstrations against Vargas continued, and he was forced to resign by the army at the conclusion of World War II. An election was held, and... Eurico Gaspar Dutra, a general, became president. Dutra's government saw many construction projects initiated, including a hydroelectric plant at Paulo Afonso, a highway connecting Rio to Sao Paulo, and the Maracana Stadium, in which Brazil hosted the 1950 World Cup. 1950 saw someone make a comeback, one Getulio Vargas, this time in a free and fair election. He inherited an economic crisis from Dutra. As part of his policies to deal with it, he founded Petrobras, the Brazilian state oil company, which I'd imagine you've seen adverts for if you've ever watched a Formula One race.
1: Oh, yes, just just the, uh, the several thousand. <laughs> there you go. Vargas remained
0: unpopular with the military. In 1954, his enemies murdered an Air Force officer, Major Rubens Vaz, and pinned the blame on Vargas's personal guard. Under intense pressure... Vargas shot himself in the chest with a pistol. His suicide note read, I leave life to enter history. With Vargas out of the picture, a couple of temporary presidents followed before the election of Juscelino Kubitschek in 1956. JK, as he was also known, embarked on a very ambitious program of development funded by foreign loans. His tenure saw the construction of a new capital, Brasilia, the idea was to open up the interior of Brazil by creating a new capital within it. Among the architects who designed Brasilia was Oscar Niemeyer, and it became a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1987. Despite his ambitious programs, Kubitschek ran up a lot of foreign debt, and inflation became an issue. He lost the 1960 election to Janio Quadros. Now, Quadros's tenure is interesting from an international perspective because he tried to make Brazil diplomatically independent, not tied exclusively to the USA. He established diplomatic relations with Cuba, China and the Soviet Union, and even awarded the Cruzeiro do Sol, Brazil's highest honour for non-Brazilians, to Che Guevara. Of all people, it's like, hey, do you want to piss off the USA? (laughs) Well, give Che Guevara a medal. These actions lost him support in the Brazilian Congress, and he resigned in 1961. After a bit of a succession crisis, the vice president, João Goulart, assumed the presidency. He lasted until 1964, when he was removed by the military and he went into exile in Uruguay. Sorry, Uruguay. The coup was supported by the USA as part of Kennedy's Operation Brother Sam plans. Basically, the US wanted Brazil aligned with them. The independent foreign policy of Quadros and Goulart just wouldn't wash. The coup heralded 21 years of military dictatorship of all the nastiness that came with it. Press was censored, and people were killed and tortured. Following mass protests, elections for the national legislature were held in 1982, before a new constitution was adopted in 1988. The last election to be controlled by the military took place in 1985, where it was won by Tancredo Neves. Unfortunately for Neves, he died of complications from cancer before he could be sworn in. While he was in hospital, the inauguration ceremony went ahead without him, and his running mate, José Sane, became president instead. So with the military regime gone, the first round of Brazil's first multi-party democratic presidential elections took place on November 15th, 1989, with the second round on December 17th, 1989, a date very important in Simpson's history. Can you remember what it was, December 17th, 1989?
1: Why, was that not the day when Simpsons Roasting on Open Fire first aired? It
0: certainly was. So there we are. I could have covered that for episode one. So with this election, what about the candidates? The runoff was contested by Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva, commonly known as Lula, and Fernando Afonso Collor de Mello, the subject of this episode. Lula was left winger famous in Brazil for leading a metalworker strike in Sao Paulo in the late 70s. Collor on the other hand was a massive outsider. He was the son of a senator and in 1986 he was elected governor of the small northeastern state of Alagoas. While there he attracted attention by attacking highly paid public servants liking them to the maharajas of India. Collor had a well-managed image and he was something of a playboy. He was tall, well-groomed and very young for a politician being only 40 years old when he stood for the presidency. He was pictured driving jet skis and motorbikes, he had a black belt in karate, and his age helped him distance himself from the military regime of the past. He attacked Lula's spending plans, and ironically enough, he ran on an anti-corruption ticket. So, like I said, the first round was held on November 15th, 1989, a significant date as it marked the 100th anniversary of the coup that removed Pedro II and heralded the birth of the Republic of Brazil. Collor ended up comfortably ahead, gaining 20 million votes nationwide. Lula scraped into second by just under half a million votes, beating Leonel Brizola into third. Collor's 30% of the vote in the first round was well short of the majority, necessitating a runoff. On the morning of the runoff, a kidnapping shook Brazil. Abelio Diniz, a prominent businessman who today is among the world's 500 richest people, was taken by a group of kidnappers, which included two Canadians. Lula was accused of being behind the kidnappings, but as the rules of the election meant that the candidates could not appear in media on election day, he couldn't go on air and deny it. Now, Collor was ahead in the polls anyway, so there's some debate over whether the kidnapping had any effect or not, but it was certainly dramatic. Following the second round, Collor received 53% of the vote and was elected president. His first task was to curb inflation, which peaked at 30,000% in 1990. Good old neoliberal policies of free trade and privatisation were the order of the day, as well as freezing bank accounts, all part of his Collor plan. He managed to get inflation down to 400% by 1991, but it had gone back up to 1,000% by 1992, and that year saw the start of Collor's downfall. In May 1992, he was weirdly dobbed in by his own brother, Pedro Collor, who wrote about him in the Gazette de Alagoas, a newspaper run by the Collor family. He wrote about Collor's exuberant lifestyle, which included drug use. And in his writings, he just sort of dropped in, oh yeah, and he pays for all of it with this influence peddling scheme. And everyone went, well, wait, wait, what? <laughs> I mean, It was a real Mayor Quimby type affair, so companies would pay millions to a slush fund run by Collor's campaign treasurer in return for political favours. Pedro Collor realised what he'd done and he tried to retract what he'd written. He just went, oh, no, 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 I didn't mean it. But the Brazilian federal police decided to investigate. So on August 26th, 1992, the Brazilian Congressional Inquiry released a report that concluded that there was evidence to believe that Collor was corrupt. Therefore, impeachment proceedings began against him, and he was charged with receiving $6.5 million in bribes. On September 29th, 1992, five days after Camp Crusty was first aired, Congress voted to impeach Kalor with 441 deputies voting in favour and just 38 against. So, you know, the whole bipartisan bipartisanship thing just didn't happen. It was like, this guy's been caught red handed. We're getting him out. So, like in the USA, once Collor was impeached in the Chamber of Deputies, he then went on trial in the Senate. On October the 2nd, 1992, Collor was officially suspended as president for 180 days, as he was now on trial. According to the Constitution, his vice president, Itamar Franco, took temporary charge. On December 29th, the last day of the Senate hearings, long process, the writing was on the wall for Collor. In a last-ditch attempt to stop the proceedings against him, he resigned as president of Brazil. It was kind of the, you can't fire me, I quit, type thing. The next day, the Senate voted to convict Collor by 76 votes to three. (laughs) Now, he couldn't be removed from office because he had already resigned, but he was barred from holding public office for eight years. However, that wasn't the end of it. Collor appealed to Brazil's Supreme Court, where his appeal failed. In 1994, his case went back to the Supreme Court but this time he was defendant in a criminal case charged with corruption. He got off, believe it or not, on a technicality. His campaign manager's computer was judged inadmissible because the police had seized it without a search warrant. And that computer was the first branch of a huge tree of evidence. So anything that stemmed from it had to be thrown out. So basically all the contacts were on this computer. And because the computer was inadmissible, they couldn't Bring anything else before the court. Collor was in this really odd situation where he had been convicted in the Senate but acquitted of the charges in a criminal court. And once his eight years were up, Collor went back into politics. After he failed to be elected as governor of Alagoas in 2002, he was elected to the Brazilian Senate in 2006. So, having been impeached as president and convicted by the Senate, He was then elected to the Senate 14 years later, and he still has allegations of bribery hanging around his neck, but he is a senator in Brazil to this day.
1: Wow. That's, um, I mean, you've almost got to applaud him uh, if it (laughs) weren't for the massive, massive corruption.
0: I just, I just find it so weird that anyone would think to vote for him again after he was kicked out for like, like obvious blatant corruption. Like, like back then, the Brazilian presidential salary was $33,000 a year. And it's like the lifestyle he had with the jet skis and the motorbikes and whatever else, yeah, you, yeah you, you would not be able to afford all of that on his salary. So, yeah, there we are.
1: I mean, if I was him, I'm not saying you should take corruption tips from me, but like, um, I think the better thing to do would be to save it until after you were president. <laughs> so, you know, just, just keep the money coming in, but then, you know – kind of uh, get get off ski after about five years and go go and cash it in but uh but uh yeah nah, maybe i shouldn't think too much about this might give me some ideas one thing that i have thought about though is uh whether um your man was in the simpsons and uh he wasn't but the country of brazil of course was uh and the reason we know this is because the simpsons wound up really upsetting brazil Um, when the family visited Rio de Janeiro to investigate another of Lisa's missing pen pals in season 13, episode 15, Blame It On Lisa, portraying the country as having aspects of nearby Spanish-inspired cultures, including things like the Macarena and the Conga, neither of which are native to Brazil, and also portraying the city as having hidden slums and the wildlife problem. I mean, you can see why they're upset. It was season 13, so the episode's rubbish. (laughs) No, of course. Of course, it's the research, or or the lack thereof. I mean, even less research went into that than than I put into these, by the the sound of it. (laughs) The subsequent portrayal is clumsy at best and disrespectful at worst. Riotur, the tourist board of the city, threatened to sue Fox, but realised it would have difficulty doing so due to First Amendment protections. The then-president of Brazil... Fernando Enrique Cardoso accused them of making a distorted vision of Brazilian reality. James O. Brooks issued a statement saying, We apologise to the lovely city and people of Rio de Janeiro. And if that doesn't settle the issue, Homer Simpson offers to take on the president of Brazil on Fox's celebrity boxing. And Al Jean noted that every other place has had a good sense of humour. Brazil caught us by surprise. Kind of, You kind of can't use that as a defence, I don't think.
0: Um, no, no, and I remember seeing that episode, and it, 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 it is offensive because basically, as soon as the Simpsons land, that Homer gets kidnapped. Yeah, that's that's a very negative stereotype you're conveying there. Obviously, the story I talked about features a kidnapping, which happened on the day of the runoff of the presidential election. But even so,
1: it's a, that. at some stage I have to do a proper. Kind of comparison of that episode and Bart versus Australia because I feel like Bart versus Australia is obviously just full of lazy Australian stereotypes, but somehow it really works and it's hilarious and it always seems to be good natured. It's needling, and this one just seems like it's putting the boot in. Um, mm. And I think that that's just just the the difference between the writing in this era era of The Simpsons we're looking at now and the writing in seasons 11 to 13. But there we go. I, I will stop. I will get off my season 11 to 13 soapbox now uh, mm-hmm. and just, just close this all off by saying that after all that, they at least had the good sense to leave it well alone. Oh, no, wait. The Simpsons visit Brazil again in season 25, episode 16. You don't have to live like a referee, in which Homer becomes the world's greatest football referee. It is terrible, and it is 100% better than the previous episode set in Brazil. <laughs> and on that nice shell, <laughs> don't forget that you can find us at org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. Email us at podcast at Retrospecticus.org, and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review any way you possibly can. Thanks for listening.
0: Cheers, everyone.
1: Bye.